Section 4 of the Final Report from the National Commission on the BP Deepwater Horizon Oil Spill and Offshore Drilling. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Dore. Final Report from the National Commission on the BP Deepwater Horizon Oil Spill and Offshore Drilling. The History of Offshore Oil and Gas in the United States, Part 2 Beyond the Shelf Rising lease bonuses still did not deter major companies such as Chevron, Exxon, Mobil, and Amico, along with some of the larger independents, such as Pennzoil, Union, and Tenneco, from drilling and developing fields in the deep-water flex trend. But discoveries could not offset overall production declines in the Gulf. Oil production on the shelf had peaked at just above 1 million barrels per day in 1972. By 1978, it had fallen below 800,000 barrels per day. Because discoveries in the flex trend play were relatively small, with fairly low flow rates, most Gulf oil and gas still came from shallow water, despite declining overall production there. In 1970, the average production-weighted depth of oil extracted from the Gulf was just 100 feet, and by 1980 it was still less than 200 feet. Many managers had concluded that there would never be economic developments more than 60 miles from shore. Other experts became convinced that significant oil-bearing sands would never be found beyond the continental shelf. But what conventional wisdom really tells you, as one shell geophysicist explained, is that you just don't know what you don't know. At just that time, some scientists from industry and academia had begun to piece together a regional picture of the geology deep underneath the Gulf. By combining information from cores with the regional seismic survey shot out into deep water, this picture showed that massive salt pillars, or diapirs, had squeezed up from the mother layer of salt deposited beginning 165 million years ago when the Gulf of Mexico was slowly forming. As the diapirs pinched up, sandstone overlaying the salt slowly subsided, forming cup-shaped mini-basins featuring different kinds of configurations for trapping oil. These sandstone formations were named turbidites. They had been deposited when ancient underwater rivers, called turbidity currents, channeled huge volumes of sediment onto the continental margin. The structural anomalies in these mini-basins looked similar to productive features on the shelf but the spotty seismic coverage allowed for only speculative knowledge of their potential, at best. Shell, always the leader in Gulf frontier exploration, had drilled a number of wells in similar rocks along the margin of the continental shelf. Turbidites in deep water were potentially much larger, less faulted, and might have prolific flow rates. At least, in theory, they would require fewer wells, making them more attractive as economically exploitable reservoirs of oil. During 1978 to 1980, hoping to test its theories about the regional geology, Shell nominated deepwater tracks for auction. But no other companies seconded its nominations, so the government never selected the tracks for sales. Then, in 1982, the Interior Department announced a new system of area-wide offshore leasing. This policy put into play entire planning areas, for example, the central Gulf of Mexico, up to 50 million acres, 
rather than rationing tracts through a tedious nomination and selection process. Companies could bid on any tract they wanted in a lease sale for a given planning area, thus giving them access to far more extensive offshore acreage at significantly less cost. Strong political opposition to area-wide leasing by some coastal states and environmental organizations stymied its effective use in other parts of the nation. See Chapter 3. But not in the Gulf, where oil companies had long operated. Established infrastructure and abundant geological information there could be put to more flexible use under a more open system. Oil companies responded to area-wide leasing by bidding aggressively for attractive blocks on the continental shelf while making a number of speculative bids on acreage ranging into 3,000-foot depths beyond the edge of the shelf. The May 25, 1983 sale harvested a record $3.47 billion in high bonus bids. All told, in seven lease sales held from 1983 to 1985, the Interior Department, through the newly formed Minerals Management Service, see Chapter 3, leased 2,653 tracts, more than had been leased in all the federal sales since 1962 combined. About 600 of these tracts lay in deep water beyond 1,000 feet. Shell acquired the lion's share of deep water tracts in the March 1983 sale and immediately started drilling. In 1982, it had leased Sonat Offshore Drilling's Discoverer Seven Seas, one of the few vessels rated for 6,000-foot depths. Shell then spent more than $40 million to extend the vessel's depth capability with a larger marine riser, enhanced dynamic positioning, and a new remote-operated vehicle to enable sophisticated work where human divers could not venture. In October 1983, the Seven Seas made a major discovery at Shell's Bullwinkle Prospect, establishing the deep-water mini-basin play which targeted the turbidite sandstones in the basins flanking the salt structures. In the next Central Gulf area-wide sale, in April 1984, many different operators jumped in to compete for deep-water tracks. This prompted Shell to move quickly in deploying the Shell America, a $45 million custom-designed, state-of-the-art seismic vessel that provided company geophysicists with high-quality proprietary seismic data. Armed with these data and other intelligence gained from drilling its 1983 leases, Shell dominated the May 1985 sale, winning 86 of 108 tracks on which it bid, in water depths ranging to 6,000 feet. For Shell, pushing deeper was an imperative for its operations in the United States as an onshore reserves continued to decline. Exploration has been called a poker game, explained one Shell official. But there's more to it than that. In this game, we don't have chips or coins or dollar bills that can change hands over and over again. We're dealing with a declining resource base, and every barrel we find is never going to be found again. The Era of Uncertainty The long cycles of oil exploration and development do not always align well with the shorter cycles of the economy. Just as Shell bet heavily on deep water, the severe recession in 1981 further depressed falling oil demand. For the first time in 34 years, U.S. oil consumption hit a plateau and began declining. The now forgotten victory of energy conservation and efficiency measures passed in the mid-1970s in response to historically high oil prices 
reversed the long trend of an increasingly petroleum-intense U.S. economy. During 1985 to 1986, oil prices collapsed to $10 per barrel as international producers saturated the global market with crude. Expensive Gulf development projects were canceled or shelved. Construction of mobile drilling vessels and other kinds of offshore servicing equipment fell sharply. Unemployed oil field workers transitioned into new trades or migrated from southern Louisiana in search of better opportunities. This human and capital flight marked the beginning of what one scholar called the inevitable disassembly of the offshore system and its onshore support network for the Gulf of Mexico. The offshore projects that went forward faced intimidating challenges. Shell drilled some dry holes costing more than $10 million apiece. Development stretched the limits of technological and financial resources. To produce oil from the Bullwinkle field, the company installed in 1988 a $500 million fixed platform 162 stories high, taller than Chicago's Sears Tower, now the Willis Tower, the tallest building in the world at the time. The Bullwinkle platform was the largest and last conventional jacket of its kind. The scale and costs of constructing anything bigger were simply prohibitive. Moving deeper would require alternative production methods, subsea wells, tension leg platforms, or floating systems. Operators had put subsea wells to use in the North Sea, but they were still extremely expensive. The tension leg platform was an innovative concept consisting of a production facility situated on a floating hull held in place by long tendons that kept the hull from bobbing like a cork but allowed some degree of side-to-side -side motion. In 1984, Conoco installed the first full-scale design of this type in the North Sea in 485 feet of water, and in 1989, the company placed its Joliet mini-tension-leg platform in 1,760 feet of water in the Gulf. But tension-leg platforms would have to be scaled up for major projects in deep water. In 1987 to 1988, Placid Oil developed a field in 1,500 feet of water with a floating production facility converted from a semi-submersible drilling vessel. But Placid soon abandoned the development, sold the semi-submersible, and sought bankruptcy protection. The deepwater costs were matched by the safety and environmental risks. In 1985, an Office of Technology Assessment study of Arctic and deepwater oil drilling highlighted the special safety risks of harsh environments and remote locations. It identified a need for new approaches to preventing work-related injuries and fatalities in coping with new hazards in the hostile Arctic and deepwater frontiers. It also presciently warned of the glaring deficiencies in safety oversight offshore, observing that there is no regulatory requirement for the submission of integrated safety plans, which address technical, managerial, and other aspects of offshore safety operations. Setbacks in the Arctic as the study indicated, deep water was not the only frontier that captured the industry's interest. In the 1980s, companies also had their sights set on the Arctic region, then thought to have the highest resource potential in the United States. Since the 1960s, major firms had produced oil from Alaska's Kenai Peninsula and Cook Inlet. In 1977, the massive onshore Prudhoe Bay field on the North Slope started pumping oil through the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. Many explorers expected to find the next great oil frontier to the north of Prudhoe Bay, 
in the Bering, Beaufort, and Chukchi Seas. Everywhere, operators drilled offshore Alaska. However, they came up empty. Either they found no source rocks, or the deposits they did find were not large enough at the time to turn a profit in the Arctic's forbidding environment. After a costly dry hole at a prospect called Mukluk in the Beaufort Sea, and some futile efforts to explore in the Chukchi Sea, the industry temporarily lost its craving for the Arctic. The public relations fallout from the Exxon Valdez oil spill in 1989, which resulted in congressional and presidential moratoriums on leasing in Bristol Bay, contributed to the industry's suspended interest in offshore Alaska. Renewed Focus on the Gulf of Mexico The mid-1980s collapse in oil prices also ruined many companies' appetite for further leasing in the deep-water Gulf of Mexico. But Shell and others chose to take a longer-term view a decision reinforced by the failures in Alaska. Additional reinforcement came in 1987, when the Minerals Management Service reduced the minimum bid for deepwater tracks from $900,000 to $150,000, enabling companies to lock up entire basins for 10 years for only a couple million dollars. During the next five years, despite flat oil and gas prices, the industry acquired 1,500 tracks in deep water. Shell's December 1989 announcement of a major discovery at a prospect called Augur, located in the Garden Banks area, 136 miles off the Louisiana coast, spurred further interest. Two years earlier, Global Marine's new giant semi-submersible, the Zane Barnes, struck oil for Shell after drilling through 2,860 feet of water and another 16,500 feet beneath the sea floor. Shell kept the discovery quiet, as it delineated the extent of the field, which turned out to contain an estimated 220 million barrels of oil equivalent, the company's third largest offshore discovery in the Gulf. Underpinning Shell's decision to go forward with Augur was the discovery of relatively high flow rates from the turbidite sands at Bullwinkle, where engineers found they could open the wells to 3,500 barrels per day three times the rate considered good for a well on shallower parts of the Gulf Continental Shelf. If Augur had similar flow rates, the field could be profitably developed even in water more than twice as deep as Bullwinkle's. Few people knew that Augur was only one of a number of shell deepwater discoveries. As the company formulated an ambitious strategy to launch a series of major platforms, a gloomy economic outlook tempered Shell's euphoria over the auger discovery and production breakthrough at Bullwinkle. The projected cost of developing auger exceeded $1 billion. In appraising the next prospect, codenamed Mars, Shell's exploration managers looked for ways to save money and offload some of the financial risk. Accordingly, in 1988, they brought in British Petroleum, BP, as a partner with a 28.5% interest in the project. At the time, Mars seemed like a risky endeavor with low probability for a major discovery. Furthermore, BP posed little threat. The company had been kicked out of Iran and Nigeria in 1979 and was struggling with a bloated management structure, poorly performing global assets, and uninspired leadership. Shell viewed BP as merely a banker. All that changed in 1989, when Sonat's Discoverer 7 series drilled into Mars. The field, located due south of the mouth of the Mississippi, lay in nearly 3,000 feet of water. 
the discovery well encountered multiple oil and gas-bearing layers stacked on top of each other over several hundred meters. Mars was more than twice the size of Augur, the largest field discovered in the Gulf in 25 years. For Shell, Mars promised a big payoff for large bets on deep-water leases. For the industry, Mars confirmed the mini-basin trend in the Gulf as a bona fide play. For BP, Mars allowed the company's managers, engineers, and scientists to go to school on Shell's deep-water technology. Perhaps just as importantly, according to BP's chief in the United States, Mars saved BP from bankruptcy. During the next several years, major oil companies and even more significantly, contractors in the offshore service industry propelled the evolution of technology in innovative new directions. The 1970s revolution in digital, three-dimensional, 3D, seismic imaging, pioneered by Geophysical Services, Inc., GSI, and the 1980s move to computer workstations, which enabled faster processing of the data generated in such surveys, combined to enhance dramatically the industry's accuracy in locating wells for field development, a critical factor when drilling a single well in deep water could cost as much as $50 million. Beyond development drilling, 3D seismic imaging boosted the success of wildcat discovery wells from less than 30% to 60 or 70%. As the major companies began to divest from older producing properties in favor of new deep water prospects, smaller firms purchased older properties and redeveloped them with significant reserve additions using 3D seismic imaging. In all, 3D seismic imaging effectively tripled or even quadrupled the estimated amount of oil and gas reserves in the Gulf of Mexico. Drilling and subsea engineering advanced in similar fashion. Drilling contractors developed a new generation of vessels that took drilling from 5,000 to 10,000 feet of water, and from 20,000 to 30,000 feet of subsea floor depth. New directional drilling techniques made possible by downhole steerable motors allowed engineers to maneuver a well from vertical to horizontal to achieve greater accuracy and more fully exploit reservoirs. Drillers also found ways to obtain information from deep inside wells using measurements while drilling tools and sensors that provided position, temperature, pressure, and porosity data while the borehole was being drilled. Improvements in marine risers using lightweight composite materials and tensioners along with new methods for preventing oil from cooling and clogging in deep-water pipelines, enabled the industry to make long tiebacks between subsea wells and production facilities. To support subsea installation and operations, the industry turned to sophisticated remote-operated vehicles mounted with TV cameras and umbilical tethers containing fiber-optic wire for the transmission of vivid images. Even as the major operators pushed into deep water, they outsourced more of the research and development, R&D, of new technologies. The bust of the 1980s had driven the exploration and production companies to decrease internal R&D and adopt policies of buying expertise as needed, rather than cultivating it from within. R&D investments in oil exploration and production by the major companies declined from nearly $1.3 billion in 1982 to $600 million by 1996. According to a National Petroleum Council study, this buy versus build strategy resulted in a significant reduction in the number of skilled people within operating companies who understood technology development and deployment.
service companies, Schlumberger, Halliburton, Baker Hughes, and Oceaneering, became the major source of technology development. An illustration of this trend was the Texaco-initiated Deep Star Consortium, established in 1992, through which offshore operators funded contractor-generated R&D. Rapid technological advances in the early 1990s did not immediately translate into more economically feasible practices. Cost overruns, delays, and strained relationships with contractors plagued the fabrication and installation of Shell's giant tension-leg platform for Augur, the industry's bellwether deepwater project. Further, Shell discovered that crude oil from the Augur field was sour, containing sulfur, which had to be separated out at the refinery, and thus had to be discounted. The company's only salvation on the project depended on Augur's wells flowing at a higher rate than Bullwinkle's. Augur pays off. Fortunately for Shell and the offshore industry, the wells did not disappoint. In the spring of 1994, Shell began to bring in wells at Augur that flowed at more than 10,000 barrels per day. Even with oil prices at $20 per barrel or less, Deepwater now promised handsome profits. The Augur wells confirmed the reservoir model for turbidites in deep water and even exceeded Shell's most optimistic estimates. Engineers designed Augur to handle 42,000 barrels of oil and 100 million cubic feet of gas per day from 24 wells. But by July, the first three wells were already producing 30,000 barrels per day. Debottlenecking efforts eventually raised Augur's capacity to 105,000 barrels of oil and 420 million cubic feet of gas per day by the late 1990s. Augur's prodigious output also made subsea completions, with the wellhead located on the ocean floor rather than on a surface production platform, economic in the Gulf, as they had been in the North Sea. With tension leg platforms like Augur, subsea completions became important as a component of an early production system or as a remote subsea development. Large fields or clusters of smaller fields, which otherwise would not justify the expense of multiple or larger platforms, could thus be profitably developed. Augur's many blessings came at a cost to Shell and the environment. Expanding production at Augur was extremely challenging. At the start of production in April 1994, Shell continuously flared or vented between 1 and 6 million cubic feet of natural gas per day without the required federal permission. The flaring and venting continued for more than four years until the Minerals Management Service announced it had discovered this violation as well as Shell's failure to record and report the releases. In a 2003 civil settlement, Shell agreed to pay $49 million, an amount equivalent to the value of about two weeks of production from Augur. If the company was chastened after having to admit to these serious violations, Shell management also must have been tempted to look at this charge as an incidental cost of doing business in the Deepwater Gulf. Deepwater Treasures The productivity of the Augur wells made the Gulf of Mexico the hottest oil play in the world. It was mostly about oil. Deepwater proved to be largely oil-prone. The source rocks for most of the Deepwater region are an upper Jurassic carrageen that generates natural gas only when subjected to very high temperatures. But subterranean thermal gradients and source rock temperatures in the deep gulf are quite modest, despite the enormous pressures exerted several miles below the seabed. 
the massive amounts of salt has acted like a heat sink, keeping hydrocarbons from getting too hot and thus cooking up large amounts of natural gas. Despite downward pressure on oil prices in the late 1990s, the promise of prolific production from deep water was too much to resist. Exploration and production firms with deep water leases consolidated their positions. Companies that had sat on the sidelines during the 1980s stampeded into unclaimed areas. Newly developing or commercialized exploration and production technologies found vibrant new markets. Contractors all along the Gulf Coast and, indeed, around the world, geared up for a surge of activity. Port Fourchon, Louisiana's southernmost port on the tip of La Fourche Parish, came to life as the jumping-off point for supplying and servicing deep-water operations in the Gulf. The next landmark on the horizon for deep-water drilling was Mars. In July 1996, Shell began producing from its Mars platform, six months before NASA launched its Pathfinder probe to the planet Mars. At a total cost of $1 billion, Shell's Mars was more than three times as expensive as the Mars Pathfinder, and its most remote technologies and engineering systems were arguably more sophisticated. The investment of money and technology paid dividends. The Mars platform tapped into the largest field discovered in the United States since Alaska's Prudhoe Bay, Creating a system to produce the field also established a new paradigm for large projects and revealed how exploration and production strategy was being reshaped in the Gulf. To reduce costs and avoid the headaches experienced at Augur, Shell introduced a different contracting model at Mars, based on alliances, including the sharing of technology and patents. Shell ended up giving away more than BP, which had little deep-water experience. But the costs and risks were too large to go it alone, as Shell had usually preferred to do. The partners carried the alliance concept over to their relationship with contractors, who built the tension leg platform hull, fabricated the topsides, and integrated the two. The project team brought in contractors early on to collaborate on developments and share risks and rewards. The key advantage of this approach was that it reduced the so-called cycle time of design bidding, and contracting by an estimated six to nine months. On a platform such as Mars, where the first well came in at 15,000 barrels per day, the time value of money made at the beginning rather than at the end of the platform's life was quite significant. Shell's contracting model at Mars, replicated on its subsequent tension leg platforms, established the growing importance of alliance networks for global oil and gas developments in technologically complex frontier regions characterized by high costs and risks. In the late 1990s, having control of one-third of all Gulf leases in depths greater than 1,500 feet, Shell rolled out one tension lake platform after the other. In 1997, a Mars clone called Ram Powell, developed in a joint venture with Exxon and Amoco, went on stream in 3,200 feet of water, 80 miles southeast of Mobile, Alabama. In March 1999, Shell and its minority partners, BP, Conoco, and Exxon, started up the massive Ursa on a lease two blocks to the east of Mars. Nearly double the weight of Mars, Ursa was designed to accommodate astounding initial well production rates of 30,000 barrels per day. In September 1999, a well at Ursa broke all records with a production rate of nearly 50,000 barrels of oil equivalent per day. 
Finally, in 2001, Shell brought in production from the Brutus platform, which tapped into a 200 million barrel field and 3,000 feet of water in the Green Canyon. Shell's new technologies solidified the company's position as the leader in the Gulf. Its tension leg platforms, as well as major fixed platforms such as Bullwinkle and West Delta 143, not only produced hydrocarbons from the fields beneath them, but also served as hubs used to take and process oil and gas production from satellite subsea wells, thus extending the life of those platforms once their own production declined. Deepwater output from Shell's platforms and subsea wells and eventually from other companies in the vicinity fed into network of Shell-owned or operated crude oil trunk pipelines, gathering systems, and natural gas pipelines. Shell also made special arrangements to transport crude oil production from its growing deepwater properties into the Clovelly storage facilities owned by the Louisiana Offshore Oil Port in South Louisiana. By 2001, Shell operated 11 of the 16 key oil trunk pipelines servicing deep water. Shell's lead in the Deepwater Gulf was substantial, but not unassailable. During the latter half of the 1990s, many companies gained ground, including a rising percentage of small and mid-sized independents. But the only company that chased down and eventually overtook Shell was BP. End of Section 4